Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week we're going to tackle some tough issues, we're going to answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Parents, today's Candid Conversation podcast is not suitable for younger audiences. Please listen to this episode without little ears around. Uh, You may choose to share portions of this interview with your children, but please listen to it first. Our topic today is suicide. This is something we're hearing about more and more every day. In fact, you may know someone who has personally been affected by this. My desire is to create framework for a Christian discussion on this issue, a discussion full of grace but seasoned with salt. We will ask and answer some of the most common questions Christians have about suicide with the aim of offering hope and resources to those who feel lost and alone in this struggle. This is a complex topic, and we can't cover every aspect of it today. It was tempting to avoid the topic, knowing that we would never cover it completely, but we felt it would be a disservice to our listeners to ignore such an urgent need in our community. Suicide is a personal, moral, theological, philosophical, and ethical issue. Today, I've invited Dr. Bill Davis, a professor of philosophy at Covenant College, an adjunct professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, and an elder in the Presbyterian Church. He spent a good deal of time discussing suicide with his students, and he has developed a training for pastors who are dealing with the issue in their churches. He is a deep and compassionate minister of the gospel, and I am excited to introduce him to you. Dr. Davis, welcome to Candid Conversations. Thank you. It's uh, good to be with you, Jonathan. And you were one of my professors, which uh, is uh, its so exciting to have you on the program uh, in light of that. Dr. Davis, as we sort of just starting to enter into this uh, conversation and thinking again of all the complexity What has been the traditional Christian approach to this topic of suicide? Um, So it could be a very long discussion. I will give you the compressed version. For a very long time, the church in general taught that suicides were people who either didn't know God or were rebels in some way or demon-possessed, worst. And the belief was that anyone who committed suicide was so far from God that they that you would presume that they died out of fellowship with Jesus and were treated as uh, people who were condemned that their destiny was was hell and that's a very hard word especially to us as we look back on it with more biblical understanding of the complexity of what it means to be in despair that there are kinds of despair that are not your fault that are not rebellion that certainly they, we can make all sorts of bad choices that deepen uh, the sense of desperation. And dying by suicide turns out to be a desperate thing for which there's no way to, to uh, fix it after the fact. So for about the last, certainly the last hundred years or so, uh, the church has been more interested in exploring the complexity of that, sort of the number of different ways that someone might reach the the point where they considered hurting themselves um, or taking a step that couldn't be corrected. And now the church is much more interested also in considering the possibility that there are obstacles 
either in physical ailment or in neurological chemical imbalances and uh, your own personal history, histories of trauma and unresolved conflicts, that all of those can be adding up to a pretty complicated stew that stand in the way of seeing your own life clearly, of understanding that the gospel is for you, for finding hope in the middle of, of life's often very difficult circumstances, and especially regarding pain, either physical or psychical pain. But over the last hundred years, it's it certainly it's gotten much more interested in hearing people than getting them to admit that they're making a mistake. And often that's what the person who is, for whatever reason, reaching the end of their confidence that, that they can hold it together. What they need is someone who will listen. Because often what's underlying is that they feel alone. And they don't see how it's ever going to get better. And the idea of being this kind of alone and hurting this way is intolerable. And what they need is someone who will not leave them alone and listen to them describe a difficult, difficult life without trying to correct it. Like, no, your life is better than that. And why don't you remember all the happy things that we did together and all the nice things I said to you and all of the reasons that I gave you for finding your life valuable. Uh, that's not what they need. They need to know that you're there in the middle of this dark place. And that's a lot of listening without correcting. I don't know if that helps, but we're getting better. at. It. Absolutely. I think, um, as you mentioned, it's, it's sort of the process that uh, people have uh, g are gaining uh, insight and knowledge into the topic. I think it's um it's good. It's helpful. And, and I think we will continue to learn. But I guess if we were to trace all of this all the way back, what would we say are the roots of this issue of suicide? So it could be as simple as the root of all sin, which is preferring our own understanding, trusting our own understanding more than we trust God, who tells us that even in the midst of pain and disappointment and loss, that God is at work in us to will and to do according to his good purposes, that he is accomplishing something wonderful in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and that we are part of that, that we have the privilege of being part of what God is doing through all of history to bring glory to the Son. So we could say, no, that's not enough for me. <laughs> so at one level, if we just thought that it was about the very fundamental level, it's having a heart that prefers our own understanding, trusting ourselves more than we trust God. And one of the reasons that it's an increasing problem is that in the culture that we're in, it provides no help to see that deeper truth. Not only are we not living in an age when most of your neighbors understand that their life is part of what God is doing in the world, not only are we not in that, uh, we're in an age where there's something wrong with you if you think there's something outside of yourself that gives your life meaning. Mm. And so it isn't just the absence of recognizing that we live to serve Jesus. It's hostility to the idea that we serve anyone. Now, the, the confident expectation of the, of the secular conversation is that you will hit upon something that resonates exactly with who you are, but it's your job to find that thing. So people are told, go find what will fulfill you. We know that there isn't anything that will fulfill a human being other than fellowship and growing in communion with God. Uh, not just any God, but growing in fellowship with Jesus and aligning with God's purpose in the world to bring glory to Jesus. Well, so people are told, go find it. It's not Jesus. 
it's not any religion because that would be somebody else's life project. And you're a fool if you try to try to do that. You will just be frustrated. So you have to find what's unique to you. And so you have lots of people who are madly scrambling to find their particular fulfillment condition. All of them are going to fail and they're frustrated. And when you're frustrated, you start reasonably thinking maybe the problem is life. Hmm. <laughs> maybe it's never going to be satisfied. And in the middle of frustration, all you have to add is one painful factor in your life, hmm. um, uh, the loss of a loved one and now a loss of a job. So you don't have an identity. And on top of not having an identity because you put your identity in your work, you're failing at the thing that the world says you have to do if you're going to be happy. Um, and now it just looks like there's no point. So the world provides no help. It pushes against finding help, finding a reason to live that is actually satisfying. And then the devices that we have drive us away from people. Uh, this, the time we spend on a screen, sometimes we're doing things that make we know make no contact with people. Mm -hmm. uh, we're making contact with uh, angry people on Twitter, but that's not human contact with people. We're making contact with ideas, reading you know, op-ed pieces or looking for news stories that tell us that things are finally going to go the way we know they have to or we're all doomed. Um, but we, So we're madly searching for something that will affirm, okay, the world's not awful. There's, it's worth going on. And it's, it's not there. But we're also not connecting with people, which is another part of what the Bible says we need in order to be not alone and to, be, to thrive in this life. And so time spent on your phone is, other than utilitarian functions, which have the purpose of getting you face-to-face -face with other people, are, are probably deepening your sense of desperation that it's just never going to add up to something satisfying. Hmm. So that's, that's one of the reasons that it appears to be on the rise. Another is just affluence. It turns out that suicide in cultures, if you look around the world right now and you look, so where are suicide rates high? Well, they're the highest where people are rich. Yeah. Traditional villages where the drought may kill them all. Suicide's not a problem. And it's partly because they've got deep human connections on which their survival depends. And we're now rich enough that we can pretend that we can all be perfectly self-sufficient pleasure centers looking for the next exciting experience, so long as we don't limit anybody else's chance to find an exciting experience. And it's spiritually crippling. In fact, we are depriving ourselves of what we need in order to, to deal with even minor setbacks because we're disconnected from people. You mentioned how these numbers are on the rise. And, um, you know, we know so many young people seem to be struggling with this topic. And they're being desensitized to the topic by watching programs like the number one uh, program on Netflix, 13 Reasons Why. And so, one, have you watched it? And two, what are your thoughts on a, on a program like that? My wife and I got the series, you know, we got Netflix, and we watched all the episodes of season one. So I made the investment. Um, what The main thing you learn from the series, and I know that's not the producer's intention. Selena Gomez was the executive producer um, I don't doubt the her the sincerity of her of her intentions to raise the issue and to start a conversation, but the principal thing that you would learn if you watch the whole series is high school is awful, and if you feel invisible and you feel like other people don't appreciate you, you can make them pay if you die by suicide 
in a carefully crafted way that makes them all deal with it. That's the main thing you learn is that it'll work. Hmm. If your principal goal is to make people deal with overlooking you, here's a method. And it's it's horrific. And this audience, you said it was the most watched Netflix, and it is. It's also the most watched Netflix show that was watched by people who had defeated the parental controls. So children who are watching it when their parents don't know that they're watching it. So there isn't someone to talk to them about what it means, uh, what it means when you feel like Mm. the whole world is turned on you. Uh, It's really hard to watch. And one of the most common criticisms in the uh, not just Christian commentary, but secular commentary is it breaks every rule that Hollywood had established for the portrayal of suicide. It shows the the effective way to end your life rather than the approved, actually, it, it might not work way. Because so mm-hmm. I think if you just binge watched it, that it would suck you in and yeah. even even somebody as uh, thoughtful and mature as you would walk away from it thinking, uh, like, I don't know, what is the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sort of plants those seeds in your mind. It's certainly not entertainment, but as part of preparing in a position to be more helpful to someone who is spiraling down, I can see a value if you do it together in community and you're talking about the ways that it's mischaracterizing some features of even what should have been evident even from the uh, the protagonist's point of view. Moving into some of the, the the practical outworkings of this, what can we do to help someone who is contemplating suicide? To tag on to that, what should we not do? The main thing to do is to be present. You probably can't identify the thing that is the greatest challenge and what they would point to as what was sending them in that direction. So, you, so you're not going to diagnose. Uh, you got to be a professional counselor. I am not one. Um, I have friends who are, and they say, and all of them say, as soon as you become aware that there's somebody who's your friend that you want to help, you should not try to do it alone. You should get them uh, connected with a Christian who does this, who's trained, who has experience, because you're going to miss things. And and it, and it could be that your friendship is what they need more than anything else, but you won't know that. Right. <laughs> you won't know that without a, uh, someone who does this, someone who's trained, and you want a believer who's doing it, so they're not just giving them Band-Aids to cover over gaping wounds. So you, you want to get someone who can point them to Jesus, ultimately. So you want them to get help. And it doesn't have to be someone who can prescribe medication because a professional will be able to point them to someone who can say, Uh, In our conversation so far, it's become evident that it might help you to talk to a psychiatrist or to your pediatrician. Often with teens, they're seeing a pediatrician who's fully qualified to make recommendations and to make prescriptions and to monitor the effect of those medications on their ability to handle what they're going through. So you want to get other qualified help, but then the most important thing is to be the antidote to the lie that no one cares, hmm. that they're alone, because they're, they're going to go all the places, and they might even end up, if they get comfortable enough, they're going to say, God doesn't love me, my family doesn't love me, I don't have any friends, no one would miss me if I disappeared, 
right? Well, all of those are like huge red flags, and you would know mm-hmm. that there are few, huge red flags. And the temptation to argue with them is huge, and that is to say, wait a minute, no, I love you. Your family loves you. Of course, God loves you. Have you looked, you know, have you read the Bible recently kind of thing? And they certainly need to be going to God's word. That is an important thing. But the first thing they need is just that you aren't leaving. (laughs) You're still there. And you're listening. And where appropriate, you're affirming that that would be hard. Um, Often people are frustrated that people are still there, but they're trying to convince them that it doesn't hurt. No, no. Being lonely, feeling unloved hurts, and you can help them. Uh, it's an important part of saying, I know this, it, to say, I know this hurts. I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Those are all true. Uh, there's nothing deceptive. It's not manipulative. It's just true. And we all know enough about being broken in some other way that, that we, can, we can honestly say, this is lousy. This is hard. Sometimes the most effective thing I say is the word the world is broken and it has a savior and part of his recovery work is later and it's so hard I know and and it isn't that you're going to end up turning the conversation to your own struggles or anything because what they need to know that you're there for them and to listen and not to talk them out of being sad it's okay to be sad not forever right right (laughs) not as your constant state of existence but we're not with people all the time Uh, for all you know this is their low 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 point and it's okay for you to say i understand that this is a reason to lament and lament is high grieving high hope it hurts the world is broken i don't know how to fix it that's grieving but god does and he's going to fix it maybe not in a way that I will recognize until Christ returns, but God knows what he's doing. That's high grieving, high hope is lament. It's something that we aren't very good at. No. Because we're a fix-it culture, which means our hope is in us, mm. and our hope is in uh, quick. And so either we deny that the world is broken in a way that we can't fix, or we insist that it's going to be fixed quickly, if we do whatever the leadership is telling us to do. It's one of the reasons that prosperity kinds of gospel are so attractive. Right. You, you go to people who are, in fact, hurting, and you tell them that you have a quick fix based on something they can do. Well, right. yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> That's trusting in your own understanding. But my friends who are, uh, who are thoughtful and self-aware that they find themselves with negative talk spiraling down into a place where they know they can't get out of it themselves, uh, what they find helpful is – they, they go to the Psalms and they just read them out loud because the whole range of human emotions are there and it's inspired. It's the Holy Spirit expressing anger and loneliness and even despair. Psalm 88 ends with darkness is my only friend. And that's the psalmist, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit. is, And that's where it ends. It doesn't end with and yet the Lord is... Uh, reigning over everything. It just ends there, which means sometimes that's okay. So I think for almost all emotion management, <laughs> go read the Psalms. Well, like start in the 60s, maybe, and just st- you know, go someplace alone and read them loudly. <laughs> I've done this for frustration, uh, but I am told that it's helpful. In thinking down that line, for the person that we know is a true believer, 
but to them they say the suffering is so extreme. What are some of the things that we can do for that type of person? Well, as I should have said before, you're praying for them and with them openly. You're saying, I don't know how to help, but I want to, Lord. Uh, open our eyes to ways that I can be helpful. You're praying that when you're by yourself, and you're praying that with them. And in that, the reason is not because you're looking for a way for the whole thing to be over so you can move on to something else, is that you want to know how to be their friend. Satan loves the lie that we're alone and that no one cares and that we're going to have to fix it ourselves. And so the things you're doing when you're praying with them, you're saying, I know I can't fix it, but I know someone who can and I want to be with you while we cry out to the Lord together. And you don't correct their prayers <laughs> when they pray, Lord, I, I can't see you and I, I doubt that you are there. You don't say, yeah, but we're praying to God. <laughs> you don't, you don't, that doesn't help them. So you want to join with their heart and in part hold them up. Together you are praying. And it's possible that the time that they're, that when they're alone, they're not able to pray because they, they, they come up with a good reason why God wouldn't be listening right now or why their sin is so great that they don't deserve for God to be listening. And so you can go and be there and together you pray and you carry them through this struggle to believe that God would listen. So that's if they're a believer and they want, but that's not going to be the first thing. It's not going to be, I've been here 10 minutes with you. Let's pray. It's I've listened to you. And then it's another day and you've come back and you're listening some more and you say, would it be all right if I prayed for us? And they and they might say uh, yes, and then they they're surprised that they're able to pray because you're praying. And it might be a long time since they've talked to God truthfully, and this will really help. It's not a solution, but you're not doing it in order to fix it. You're doing it in order to be another broken sinner who's at the moment slightly less crippled about this. But we're a whole bunch of crippled people that hold each other up and walk around. So we've been talking about sort of that one to one relationship, that that direct relationship with someone who's having these thoughts, emotions, feelings. But what if we're sort of one step removed from that? What what can we do to help the people who have a loved one who is contemplating suicide? Yeah, Um, you're praying for them. You're praying that God will bring someone into their life. And who will be that friend who will give them an appointment to look forward to, who will give them someone whose opinion they expect to be positive. What they need is someone in their life who will say, I value this about you. I look forward to being with you for this thing, not just because I have to be. So you want someone in their life. So you're praying that God will send someone to be that voice of affirmation. And if necessary, you're sending people saying, um, would you go and be a friend to my son? And if he says, why are you here? Says, well, your parents were worried about you, but they told me that you had this ability or this interest. And I share that interest. And so I thought that we would enjoy the time that we spent together. I'm not here as a babysitter. I'm here because there's something about you that that I would like to get to know what they need is they need for for God to be healing them. But the most likely instrument of that is people. 
people who want to love them for who they are, not what they could become or things they could use or something, but just who want to want to love them. And so you could send people. If they aren't reaching out to you and you're close to them, it's probably pretty embarrassing to say I'm needy. But you can always ask. And it turns out that you should ask when you're worried about it. I didn't believe this when I was told it by more than one Christian counselor. That you can ask and you should ask, have you thought about hurting yourself? And I always thought, no, no, no. If they've never thought about it, this will give them the idea that maybe you think they should. And what the counselor said was, no, uh, they've already thought about it. If you're worried because they're withdrawing from people or because they're, they've become uh, uninterested in, you know, less interested in personal hygiene or if their life has become either way more orderly or way less orderly, there's just big changes uh, that you've noticed, they've thought about it. That that would be, especially in the current culture with shows like 13 Reasons Why on, they have thought about it. And for you to ask, not in a way that says, like, I think you're a mess. <laughs> Please confirm to me that you are a dangerous mess. You're not asking it that way. You're just genuinely curious. Have you thought about hurting yourself? Then they're empowered to talk about it. And their most likely experience is that you're pulling towards them saying, um, I'm concerned about you as you and I would miss you. So it works against the falsehood that they're tempted to believe that no one would miss them or that they're not important. So you can and even should ask, have you thought about hurting yourself? If the answer isn't, no, of course not. <laughs> then you want to encourage them to to talk to someone who is an expert in helping people um, process those sorts of thoughts. And that isn't me. It's, it's very few of us. It, it, it turns out that the people who are trained in that, they're made of very stern stuff. They're called by God to do it. They can enter into other people's pain in a way that makes a connection without it destroying them. I know this next question can be kind of a mixed bag, but entering in the concept of medication, is medication helpful? Is it harmful in this fight against suicide? I don't know any Christian counselors who don't think it's an important thing to have in the conversation with a trained medical professional monitoring the effect that the medication has. Self-medication is really not a good idea. You know, just finding out that your friend is getting help from this agent, no, uh, from this particular drug, that's a bad idea. But doing it under the care of someone who is licensed to do it especially if it's recommended by a, a professional counselor of another kind who's seen lots of cases. That's another thing that the counselors, along with an, uh, a particularly kind of soft but resilient heart, they've seen lots of cases. And so they have the experience to say, this is like a case where medication made a difference. Medication isn't, isn't a cure. It doesn't fix things. It removes one kind of obstacle, an obstacle that... Uh, psychic pain sometimes, uh, it removes an obstacle. They have side effects. That's another thing that the expert knows about and can talk to you about and say, here's what we're trading. We're going to trade an increased ability to cope with negative self-criticism uh, in exchange for sleeplessness or jitteriness or lethargy, like the, they do different things. But all of that up front, that's, that's what a professional can do. And so I think it's a 
I think it's the right thing to do. It's certainly the best practice in the Christian counseling community. The best practice is for that to be one of the possibilities. It's they don't go to it first, and it certainly isn't a cure. You don't say, here's the pills. You don't need to talk to anybody, and you don't need anybody monitoring what it's doing to the rest of you. Um, it's something that has to be managed carefully, but um, we're, we're whole things. We're, uh, we are embodied beings, and our brains are part of it. We are not souls that ride around in some tiny location inside our bodies to be jettisoned. No, it's a, we're a really complicated embodied mess, and it would make sense, just as physical pain can make it hard to think clearly. Like if you break your arm it's really hard to think clearly and do your taxes. <laughs> it would make sense that if you had a chemical imbalance in your brain, that it would make it hard for you to focus, believe affirmations when you hear them, or whatever the challenge is. So medication can help. It can counteract some part of an obstacle to hearing the gospel, to embracing the truth about you, uh, some of it, about your talents, about other people's appreciation for you, um, all those things. And so they, they just remove an obstacle, but they're a pretty important, for some people, it's a pretty important piece of uh, what they need. We talked about this at the beginning, but there are some Christians who believe that a person will go to hell if they die by suicide. What is an appropriate theological response to this? So we do know that there is an unforgivable sin. Jesus describes it in talking to the, to the scribes and Pharisees who had accused him of working miracles by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus says, this will not be forgiven. To attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan is unforgivable. Well, so there, we have one. But it's the only one. All the other sins, um, mass murderers can cast their, all of their sins on Jesus and Jesus's blood is sufficient even for them. So you could just reason from, if Jesus's blood is sufficient for mass murderers, it would certainly be sufficient for this particular act. It's desperately sad, and certainly contrary to God's will. It's, a, it's sinful to do, but it's a forgivable sin. So those who are trusting Christ alone for their salvation, who reach the end of their their coping skills for whatever the, whatever the reason is, they are not disqualified from the blood of Christ. Uh, these are people who had who who had lived for Jesus and were trusting Him alone, and their life came to an end in this uh, very very disruptive way. But we still celebrate that Jesus is the defeater of death, even this death, and in the midst of our sadness. We, we praise Jesus for being sufficient for sinners. What do Christians do? You know, in the news we've heard lately of prominent Christian leaders who had awareness of the issue, uh, awareness of this issue within themselves, and still chose death by suicide. Um, mm -hmm. I would think that that could strike a little bit of fear into people who are having those doubts and questions and fears. Where do we go with that? Yeah, um, it ought to have the effect of for people who are not struggling with it to be more vigilant about looking for people who are withdrawing, people who are giving the, the indications that it might be going on out of sight, that there's a struggle going on out of sight, or that you, maybe it's going on partially in sight, but you're 
explaining it away as they're they're overwhelmed with the size of their ministry or well everybody has some problems in their in their marriage or something you're explaining it away well maybe you'll stop explaining it away you'll start asking and you might be the person who goes towards some, precisely because someone who manifested the fruit of the spirit appeared to have significant spiritual gifts was um, a was a teacher of Israel had all of these things and yet they were swallowed by this that's a reason to think that you shouldn't just figure that the people that are okay are okay that you should be looking for evidence that you're needed and moving towards them and asking them if they're okay and asking them if they've thought thought about hurting themselves Uh, but we should never take for granted that other people are just fine we need to get close enough to so that we're asking as a friend and not as a curious sort of a gawker um, a rubbernecker in their life. and But there is no one who's immune from grave temptations. I think that Christian leaders are especially prone to determined attacks from Satan, that we should be more careful to look for evidence. I think that for young Christians, those are the, who are not struggling with thoughts of suicide, it it gives an opportunity for for them to believe, well, look, if a Christian leader has a life that's un- intolerable, why are you hanging around? You're there because you think it's going to make life good, which is not what the gospel's about. Uh, you're there because it's going to make life more like Jesus's life, which didn't go, you know, was very, very difficult. So that's part of it's a misunderstanding of what we're after. I mean, what why we cling to Christ. We don't cling to Christ because this life is going to get easier. Right. We, we cling to Christ because only you have the words of eternal life. Hmm. What it says in John 6, when the, everybody leaves him, and, and he says to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? And they say, Peter says, like, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That's why we, we cling to Jesus, because he's the only way. And he brings life abundantly, but he brings it by reordering what we were looking for in the first place. So, it takes time. But we're, I mean, we're getting the best life possible, but it doesn't look like what the world counts as the best life possible. Right. It's right. a life of service and a life of, of, of um, joyful persecution and difficulty because we know who we belong to. So I think that's who's most at risk from, uh, from a high-profile suicide is people brand new to the faith who, who are susceptible to the objection that this is evidence that it's never going to get good the way you thought, only you thought about it the wrong way. Right. I know you've um, you've spent a lot of time and a lot of work on um, studying and writing about elderly and and end of life. And so, I guess my question would be: Is there ever a case where suicide is an acceptable alternative, whether it's? Um, the elderly and end of life or terminal diseases or sort of thinking down that track. Just as we know that taking your own life is not unforgivable. We also know that it's a sin that we are not the owners of our own lives, that what the Bible consistently says is that life belongs to God, that he's the, the, the Lord and maker of life. And it's not ours to dispose of even when we're in great pain for people who know Jesus and they know that their life is serving the ultimate purpose of glorifying God, 
even great pain, and we know this from the history of from church history, even great pain is counted as uh, something worth it. Not that it's it's real pain, and not that it's something you seek out. What we can tell people is there are very good pain management regimens that are available. These are people who also need more people in their life. They need the affirmation. So when the pain is there, they need to know that the pain is not proof that they're worthless. It's not proof that God has abandoned them. It's not proof that other people find them repellent or useless. Uh, They need people. Again, I think we all need this all the time. But in these concentrated moments, it's especially important that people are there without an agenda, that they're not there checking off a box or doing the minimum. They just, they need to know that they're valued as they are. So it's never appropriate to take a life that doesn't belong to you, and that includes your own. So it's always sinful. We have a great Savior. So anyone who says, I think I'm, I think I'm the exception, <laughs> I, think, I think I'm the person who's suffering so much that God wouldn't be offended if I took matters into my own hands. That's just the answer. No, that's never true. It's never appropriate. It looks tempting, and it especially looks tempting to people who don't see the point of their own life anymore. And there are other people willing to help them end it. No, it's wrong, but it's also, I think, bad for us as communities for us to be sending that message. And it's bad for the individual to be told, yes, we agree. <laughs> the pain you're suffering is more is worse than your life is worth because it isn't. That's also just not true. <laughs> well, Dr. Davis, yeah, it's been such a privilege to sit down and talk with you on such a uh, complex and massive issue, but extremely important. And so um, we're grateful that you've made the time to come and talk with us. And um, thanks. Thank you for coming and being with us. Yeah, it's a privilege. I, uh, I really appreciate the work that your church is doing, the, this ministry as well. And it's great to have friends like you. Absolutely. This is part one of a two-part candid series on suicide. Next week, we will talk with a young woman who lost her mother to suicide and a counselor who will help guide us as we minister to those struggling with suicide. If you are personally struggling with suicidal thoughts, please reach out to someone. If you're involved in a church, please contact your pastor. If you are not connected with a church, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. To connect with us, visit ltw.org slash candid.